Well, good evening, everybody. We are looking to start uh, here right on time, uh, maybe just a few seconds early, but um, as we get going here, there's going to be a lot of material to cover tonight. I uh, hope you're in the mood for an overview kind of lecture. Um, with uh, You're welcome to have any questions. You're welcome to have any comments or things like this. Please post them up in the chat. You're welcome to. And um, if you are stumbling upon this on YouTube you're, uh, and you want notifications about when we go live, uh, this is every Wednesday night, 6.30 p.m., uh, you can uh, you can go ahead and subscribe. And, uh, and if you do hit that bell, it'll just let you know when we go live so you can be reminded of it uh, every week when we when we post these up. If you're listening through the podcast and you want to watch it live, it's uh, really easy to find youtube.com slash church history and theology youtube.com slash church history and theology. Tonight is a fascinating uh, topic. It's um, I really struggled with coming up for a name for this because we're covering so many different areas that to come up with a single title to it really doesn't do it justice. And so the best thing that I could uh, express as far as the direction that we're headed tonight is Christendom No Longer. This idea that Christianity for about 1,700 years, uh, excuse me, at this time, about 1,500 years, had been a certain way that in which it interacted with the culture. And then all of a sudden, everything switched in the 1800s. Everything. Uh, worldview, politics, society, travel, industrial revolution, technological revolution, all sorts of things. And so we're going to talk about all of this tonight just in a quick smattering. Now, when we walk through these in the subsequent episodes throughout this summer, we are going to talk about each of these things. We're going to dig down into each of these things. Have no fear. Uh, but tonight, I wanted to give a really good overview of everything so that you can get uh, kind of a good grasp on where we're heading and why we're heading there. Because the reality is a lot of the frustrations that the church deals with today uh, are not the first times that we've had to deal with these. We've been kind of struggling with what is our responsibility, what is our interaction with culture, and uh, and it's a really important thing to talk about, a really important thing to understand the context of. Um, so let me let me kind of talk about this kind of concept that I I settled on, and that is Christendom no longer. Uh, when it comes to Christendom, this idea that Christianity and the political order were all wrapped up together in kind of a um, a messy, but at least somewhat orderly uh, knot that you couldn't really untangle. Uh, all throughout the Middle Ages, all throughout the medieval era, uh, even the late antiquity, um, all the way up to the era of modernity, and uh, even, even living through the Renaissance, and through most of the Enlightenment, and then only on the on the tail end of the radical enlightenment, do we actually start to have a disentangling of, of state and church and this kind of understanding for how these two things are supposed to interact. Um, so when I say Christendom, obviously we have to talk about where all this came from in the first place, because when you, when you open the pages of scripture, you do not see Christendom. You don't see the church and the state working together to bring about, you know, um, you know, pretty much anything that we see in church history. You don't see the church and state working together at all, nor do you see this in the early church because the early church was seen as the enemy of the state. And for the first several hundred years of the church, the church lived in a persecuted state. Uh, and it was not a, it was not a good thing to be a Christian and a citizen, for instance, those two things often did not coincide it really wasn't until the fourth century and even the very late parts of the fourth century that you really get into um, what could start to be called the beginning stages of what became Christendom. Uh, and that is what we will title. And if, you, if you're taking notes, this is a very important term to, to write down. It's called the Constantinian synthesis. Now, if you've never heard that term before, um, I'd invite you to go back to some of our lectures on Constantine. We don't talk about the Constantinian synthesis there because that, that's really a, a term that we see in reflex looking back in history, but it is a description of what happened when Constantine, the emperor, the Roman emperor, um, 
through the Edict of Milan in 313, made Christianity a legal religion. Uh, it was no longer allowed to be persecuted. But by the time we get to the close of the 300s, Christianity has moved from not only a legal religion to now we'll have it as the state religion. That that happened in uh, in 380 AD. And so that kind of transition changed the way that the church interacted with society, understandably so, right? You had a lot of people break off from the church because they didn't think that the church could survive with its great commission while it was uh, walking lock and step with the Roman government. And so you'll have the rise of the monast monastic movements and the removal of things like that from the church. Um, but one of the things that it drastically changed was society, culture, monetary policy, war decisions, and things like this now had to come with a very specific Christian bent. You know, we had to come up with the rules for what does a Christian society look like? What does a Christian nation look like? Um, and uh, what what began especially small in the West began to grow significantly. Uh, especially after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. And in the West, that kind of power vacuum led to the church in the West specifically, this would be what becomes the Roman Catholic Church later on. Uh, in the West specifically, you, you deal with such a power vacuum and weak rulers that the church grows to such a strength um, that it not only is taking care of clerical issues and... Um, and, and concerns of the soul, but then it also has to start figuring out how to fix all the societal issues. Uh, in the East, some of the same things exist, except for you have much stronger rulers in the East, and so the church never really rises to that kind of level. Um, the reason I say this is because what happened under Constantine, what happened in the later stages of the fourth century under uh, his descendants after him, especially Theodosius, uh, later on, is that Christianity moved from becoming a, uh, within within the same century, it moved from being persecuted, where having scriptures could lead you to being put to death, to uh, legal status, to the emperor is a Christian, to now it's the state religion. And so you deal with a lot of all the problems that come with that. Um, and, you know, a, a certain level of church hierarchy has to be created to match up with that. Um, and then there's what we're going to say is uh, what's called cultural syncretism. Uh, this, this idea of taking things from uh, the culture in which the church lives and trying to bring it into Christian theology and make it all work somehow. This is, for instance, how the Roman Catholic Church uh brought Latin in as its um, its official language, even though the New Testament was written in Greek. Um, the Latin translation becomes significant because, again, the church in the West becomes the caretaker of all things Rome, as well as all things Christian. Um, and so you'll get weird... You'll get weird things like, um, you know, Constantine calling a council. Uh, you'll get the emperors calling councils... Uh, making decisions over bishops and things like this that get into really dicey territory uh, is, as we're looking back on that. But that is what we mean when we say the Constantinian synthesis. Um, it is a very transformative period uh, when Christianity in the fourth century kind of became part of the state. Uh, and it really laid down the groundwork for what will become Christendom uh, in the medieval era and, uh, and especially the Middle Ages, the late Middle Ages, and um, and become uh, the church in the West specifically uh, becomes this, but also in the East, they're, they're a much smaller scale, but certainly so uh, in the East as well. Um, this this kind of concept, but most of it we're going to be dealing with is is specific to Western Christianity and Western civilization, and it formed pretty much everything that you and I are familiar with uh, in in the Western world, uh, sparking you know, scientific revolutions and Renaissance fevers and, you know, back to the sources, which would be not only, you know, Greek and Roman historians and, and philosophers, but also uh, the scriptures and the Reformation comes out of this and all so many other things. Um, but what happens at the beginning of the time period we're talking about tonight, 
is the Constantinian synthesis, this amalgam of church and state being so locked together begins to die. Now, it takes a long time for this to happen. Uh, I would argue that it has finally fully happened. That would be my interpretation of, of uh, the past couple of decades, that Christendom itself has finally completely died. Um, and we would be in what some historians are starting to call the post-Constantinian era. Um, it's very likely that that's the case, though I will say this, you know, take it with a grain of salt. You really can't write about history until it's, you know, about 50 years old uh, and everything's kind of washed through. Um, and we're certainly not to that point yet, but it certainly does look like uh, we have we have permanently moved past anything that even looks like Christendom, at least in the West. Uh, that brings up really interesting things for what we'll talk about towards the end of this. Uh, some of the movements are happening in Africa and even in Southeast Asia, but uh, we'll leave that off until the end. Um, when when I say the Constantinian synthesis starts to die, it really it really brings to light this reality that. Uh, when all of this was linked together, it didn't really make everything better. Some parts of culture were better, but some parts of it were worse. Uh, we had to come up with ways in which, you know, the scriptures don't address a certain thing. Like, for instance, if, you know, you're a Christian emperor uh, and uh, there's a war over here, are we allowed to go murder? Are we allowed to go fight this? You know, when, when does it become murder? Is it when we invade? Is it, we can only do, you know, defensive things. And so we, you know, you have to come up with answers for things that like the church wasn't really designed to come up with answers for, at least from my perspective. Right. And so with, with all of this, how is it that such a thing comes to an end? Well, it's not going to be any one specific thing. It's not going to be like everyone gets together and says, hey, I got an idea. You know what we should do? We should separate church and state out. Um, that's not that's not how this works. And you got a pile of other ideas and everything else. It really is something, and I think this is one of the reasons why it took so long for it to happen, is that it needed every area of culture to head away from this in order for it to occur. You needed the rise of modernity in the wake of the Enlightenment. You needed the revolutions as well of the uh, 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. You know, not just the American Revolution, the French Revolution. Uh, you needed several other ones, uh, you know, going all the way through um, the, the 19th and 20th century. Things like the Russian Revolution, um, even the Ugandan Revolution. Like, some of these things really uh, draw out some of the uh, pushing away of religion out of state life, uh, at least on some levels. And some of them, some of them weren't specific to that. And some of them have rebounded a bit. And, you know, history is not clean and clear and it's not one direction. It's, it's kind of a hodgepodge and a mixture. Um, but you'll definitely see some of that. Uh, there's a lot of, with that, obviously, political and social upheavals. Uh, you know, when you enter the 1800s, you still have the Holy Roman Empire. Right, you have the French Revolution that ended up with the French Empire under Napoleon, right, and that lasts for a while, and then it kind of goes away. Spain begins to fade off the main scene. The British Empire, uh, even after its defeat at the American Revolution and so forth, it begins to continue its uh, you know, dealings in the world. And the British Empire being as massive as it was, the Victorian era. And the very young United States of America, the westward expansion, manifest destiny, these things that we've talked about, um, these are all political and social upheavals. These are not small forces that are occurring. There's religious upheavals, um, and we'll talk about a lot of those. The Industrial Revolution. Uh, the Industrial Revolution comes through, and it changes life. You know, you, you can't just change things on the... Um, on the political side, you'll, you're going to have to actually change how people's lives actually function in order to get a, a seismic shift of this magnitude. And the Industrial Revolution will play its part, uh, especially in how it shrinks the world down. That's always very important. Uh, and we'll talk about that tonight as well. Uh, the World Wars, massive, massive. Uh, the creation of the nation states after the World Wars, the end of empires, uh, the Empire of Japan goes away. Um, the, you know, the Austria-Hungary empire, like there's, there's so many aspects about how the world changes. Um, and then 
uh, I don't want to pass over. This is not just a history class. The, the church itself really becomes for the first time, a truly international church. Like we are not, the Church of England and the Church of France and the Church of Spain and the Church of Italy, uh, you know, there, there's there's actually a globalness to this because once again, transportation, communication, all of this stuff is shrinking the world down to where we can actually start understanding how an international church could actually function and work. Uh, and we're still trying to deal with that. And then we're going to end up uh, at the end of tonight looking at the statistics for the church of the 21st century, and it might be surprising to some of you uh, where the centers of Christianity seem to be going, uh, because it's going to be going away from the West, and it's going to be moving quite south, uh, which is a really interesting uh, change and will bring all of its own struggles and all of its own mistakes and all of its own glory, as every age and era of the church has done. Um and uh, and it's going to be doing so without the Constantinian synthesis, which will be a whole new way in which Christianity interacts with the world. So let's kind of dig into this. Um, we talked about the Constantinian synthesis, the way it changed the Roman Empire uh, back in the fourth century, and this way in which the councils were held, that creeds were written. This wasn't just some straight up political force coming in and rewriting stuff inside the church. That did not happen. Uh, there were certainly there were political intrigues. And we've talked about these in the past uh, episodes going through this time period. But the vast majority of this was we're finally in a place where we can do theology. And yes, is the empire is the emperor paying us in order to do this? Yes. Is that seen as a bad thing? No. By some, yes. But as a whole, the reality is that we finally get to sit down and, and write things. We finally get to sit down and work through some stuff. We finally get to sit down and refute those who are wrong. And we get to meet together in freedom without fear of being terrorized or destroyed. Uh, so in some ways, a really good thing. But one of the byproducts of the Constantinian synthesis is while some of it was really good, like tax-exempt status for church buildings, for instance, or even just being able to have church buildings at all, or the, you know, the imperial uh, you know, decree to go out and make Bibles that are handwritten, something that is far too expensive for individual Christians to do in the fourth century, all of a sudden the emperor not only allows it, but pays for it. You know, does that affect things? Yeah, it affects things, but there wasn't another way yet to do Bibles, at least on that kind of a scale. Nobody else could pull it off. And so that while there was good things that came with it, and then there was bad things that came with it, the reality is that's the way that much of the visible church in the West was heading towards. And by the end of the fourth century, you get that, and there's nothing that you can do about it. It's the, the church and the state are linked arm in arm. And uh, it's a really bizarre thing. Um, and there's no real Western and Eastern church quite yet. That would be a little bit anachronistic to talk about it that way. But the divides do certainly start working and, um, and that. So all throughout church history, that's been the way of it, right? You, you know, you're based on where you were born is based on what church you belong to. Uh, if you're born in the Eastern Empire, you are Eastern Orthodox. If you're born in the Western Empire, you are Roman Catholic. And then the Reformation comes up and you think, oh, well, isn't that the rise of, you know, individualism and things like this? Not really. The rise of the Reformation led to different state churches. And so if you were German, you were Lutheran. If you were, uh, if you were Dutch, then you were most likely Reformed. If you were, you know, if, you know, in the later parts of the 1500s, if you were, uh, Scottish, you were Presbyterian. If you were English, you were Anglican. So, you know, this kind of church and state separation did not happen over in Europe. That really did not happen even in the colonies, right? So the last time we talked, we talked about the colonies and all. That really didn't happen in the colonies. The colonies themselves, several of them had state churches. Um, you know, the issue behind the, the, the First Amendment was really that the, the federal government not make a state church. Uh, we were trying to make it so that we can all live next to each other somehow without, you know, poking each other with sharp sticks. 
Um, but one of the things that that changes, and the United States is one of the first countries that's made with this in mind, is that maybe state and church together don't make the best mix. And so we protect against Congress, you know, putting up any church on the federal level. We don't, we don't prevent individual colonies or individual states from doing that, but we want to stop it on the federal level because we've seen over in England or England, excuse me, in England. Yes. But over in Europe that there's, there's, this doesn't always lead somewhere good. Uh, it doesn't protect us against wars. It doesn't protect us from anything like that. Obviously we learned within a hundred years, it doesn't, you know, keeping it out of the federal level doesn't protect us against wars either. The civil war happens in the 1860s. So, um, but while America is being designed kind of from the ground up, it's using enlightenment ideals that come out of the modernist movement. And that's kind of our first stop. Uh, our first stop is what, what ended this Constantinian synthesis. It was necessary for the rise of modernity to happen. Modernity is characterized by, um, to put it simply, uh, scientific rationalism, uh, uh, a kind of, at least in the latter stages, a commitment to secularism, uh, trying to pursue worldviews outside of a, a, a Christian mindset. Um, and again, a lot of this is focused on the West, right? Um, and, and then the rise in the later stages of individualism. Now, what's really more fascinating about this is that while individualism does have its roots in modernity, it also has massive roots in pietism. And so you're going to get, and, and we've discussed all of these, you're going to get people who can look to Descartes and who can also look to um, Philip Spainer and see a way in which to do Christianity on a almost entirely individualistic level. Not only is it based on the individual emotions that I have uh, and my emotional reactions to following Christ, that would be from Spainer and the um, and the rise of pietism and the influence of that, especially in America in the early days, but also from scientific rationalism, Descartes and uh, and Hume and um, and and Kant and all of these thinkers that all disagreed with one another. But there was something to this ability to use my mind for myself and and to pursue scientific rationalism, the rational faculties, the emotive faculties, and now all of a sudden, do I really need the church? And so you will get rises of these movements that have much more of an individualistic bent to them. They won't be looking to, you know, what is the tradition handed down to us? It's more going to be looking at what are what is the future look like? And so you get churches that are um, no longer really focused towards the past, but are focused towards this kind of progressive ideal of the future. Maybe we could build this up towards some utopic future. And this is something that comes straight out of modernity for good reason, honestly, and for at least for understandable reasons, because there was advancements happening on every front, medicine, travel, on every front. We, we were able to navigate around the world because we, de we devised certain ways that watches can work and well, at least chronometers at the time, you know, we, we started figuring out how to do almost everything and how to work out almost everything. Uh, modernity really was this this huge building up of the potential of humanity to to pursue the future in his own right. And a lot of people saw that the need to leave behind uh, Christianity or leave behind the church or or even of Christian theology would go hand in hand with the progressive pursuit of the future. There was a lot of people that didn't see that, right? Uh, and so you're going to get all sorts of different ways to uh, to interact with this. But for a lot of it, the shift towards, you know, empirical, you know, I can verify it with my five senses type of science really challenged a lot of people's assumptions about reality. And there was a lot of uh, focus on the uh, issue of authority. This always comes up in every transitional point in church history. You know, who has the authority to say what about the current situation? And here in the rise of modernity, obviously the authority of established churches that are, you know, looking towards tradition for guidance rather than future for aim, 
really twist the scales around, right? Um, and so you get during this whole period, and again, we're not really overly focused tonight on dates. Uh, you can look up all of these, but honestly, tonight is just kind of narrative, uh, topical narrativing. Um, we'll talk about all these as we go through it. So, um, but it is during this period uh, in the late 1800s that the theory of evolution is put forward by Charles Darwin's uh, uh, enormously famous book, Origin of the Species. Um, you get Charles Lyell's work on on uh, on geological ages of the Earth and these types of things. A lot of this is brand new studies that are coming out, trying to address how the past truly was, right? And 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 people are wrestling with this, right? Because again, we don't need the scriptures in order to to look back to the past in in secular modernity, and. Some people look at that and they say, well, I can I can bring that right into and synthesize that with the scriptures. Some people react against this. This is different than we've seen, so we're not even going to entertain it. Um, you'll get you'll get a, um, a the rise of 19th century um, liberalism, which uh, capital L as a Christian theological conviction. Um, and I will say right off the top, and that's not a pejorative term. That's a very technical term as I'm using it. Uh, liberalism in Christian theology was the idea of um, trying to synthesize modernity and uh, and Christian theology in some way that made them mesh. And the regrounding of the faith, at least in some part in the modernist worldview, um, it's going to change the way we look at scripture. It's going to change the way we look at society, the future. It's going to change a lot of stuff. Um, and especially since the modernist worldview brings in this kind of utopic progressivism, uh, it's going to make us, you know, look to the future in specific ways. Um, we'll talk a lot about that when we get to it. Um, really important stuff. Uh, one of the things that I do want to express about this though, is that when we, when we look at, uh, how we're supposed to be viewing the world, if you're going to leave behind the Christian story. Um, if you're going to leave behind the scriptures in the way that they've been understood with regards to the creation of the world, um, even as, as many have argued back and forth about the exact age of everything and all this kind of stuff, the reality is when, when the modernists' movement really starts moving forward headlong into secularism, it's going to have to come up with its own story. Um, you're not going to long survive as a you know, empiricist, you know, modernist worldview while still trying to, you know, drag the scriptures behind you. And so there is going to have to be an explanation of the world that takes into account a, a just a pure naturalist expression of how this world works. And so you will see in the latter stages of liberal theology, you will see um, a, a commitment to the natural world as the most predictable place that you could find things. And so you'll see a, a reimagining of what miracles are. It can't break the natural order. Um, you know, anything that insists that God did something is going to be challenged from inspiration of scripture, miracles, virgin birth. It, in the later stages of this, in the 20th century specifically, those things are going to be challenge. We'll talk about those in grave detail. And so why do I say that this is necessary for the Constantinian synthesis to die? It's because if if the state is going to bifurcate and separate out from the church, and the church is going to stand over here, the state needs its own story. And so does the church. Because for a long, long time, their story has been unified, right? You will have, like for the, the night for those of us who uh, attend in, in, in person back then, you know, the night that we watched the Luther movie, what did you see when Luther was being put on trial? You see the emperor and you see the representatives of the Pope, you know, both sitting on two different thrones, right? You know, they're, they're both there present trying a heretic in their mind. Right. And so that kind of, that kind of synthesis of culture and, and religion cannot exist in the modern world. And so, there's going to have to be a way to lay foundations in the modernist secular world. Uh, and one of the things it's going to do is, is based it on scientific rationalism as best as we can do. 
you know, we're going to find what is the what is the newest theory, what is the what is the most comprehensive theory that can explain all of these things. And so that's why you really have a a a burst onto the scene of archaeological work, a burst onto the scene of biological work and um and scientific work and um rationalism on many different levels that are trying to establish and ground a worldview that is not dependent on the scriptures. And that's just a natural thing for people trying to separate out from the church to do. Uh, we can't just take the church for what it says if if at the very end of the day we're working on uh, something a little bit more uh, secular than that. Um, the revolutions of the 19th and 20th centuries I already made mention of. The American and French revolutions, there are several European revolutions um, uh, in the in the mid-1800s. The Russian Revolution, 1917, uh, and a lot of the later decolonization movements of the 20th century, uh, after World War II, you see a rise of uh, empires kind of dying away and uh, individual nations establishing themselves. Um, you see several other revolutions taking place, places like um, Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, um, none of these without cost, but just on the political side of things, you see a significant amount of upheavals. Uh, you see in this same time period, you see the abolition of slavery, um, all in Europe first, and then in America, uh, very reluctantly, uh, uh last, uh, you see suffrage movements for, um, not only for freed slaves, but also for women, um, and a lot of this comes out of a kind of a democratic ideal rather than a uh, investment ideal. Uh, originally, most people don't realize voting in the United States was based on land ownership, uh, you know, which was indirectly affected by gender, obviously, um, and you know, each household having a vote. Uh, it really wasn't until you know the latter suffrage movements that expressed, you know, every individual has a right to vote. And again, this rise of individualism is part of modernity. It's part of uh, the ongoing uh, expressions of individualism, even in the religious world, which we'll get into next. Um, the rapid growth of cities, urbanization, uh, the, the way in which we pursue uh, the Christian life with new challenges in not only the Industrial Revolution, but just in the way of city life working. City life has always brought challenges to the church all throughout the medieval era, uh, even in the late antiquities, but especially in the medieval era and in the modernist era, we really, it's, it's been a hard thing to address. You know, what, what is our, our job? If, if we live in a town, say of, you know, a hundred people, you're not going to be as a church going, Hey, you know what we should do is open a hospital and an orphanage you're not going to be dealing with issues like that. When you come to a city that's, you know, 500,000 people, okay, maybe the Methodist hospital is a necessary thing. Maybe maybe the Catholic hospital is a necessary thing. Maybe the Baptist hospital, right? Those types of challenges, those types of approaches uh, only show up really as cities become the main hubs of where people live, uh, even in, especially in the new world. Uh, Europe had a lot of stuff baked into the cake um, but America is trying to remake itself while all of this is going on, which is why we're such a, a patchwork of, you know, views and political intention. Um, I just mentioned that there was a lot of religious upheaval. So let's go into this. Obviously, this is a church history class. This isn't just a basic history class. Uh, so we got to address some of these things, right? Some of the same things. And you can see similar effects of this happening in the religious world. And so you see a lot of movements in the West, uh, especially in America, that that follow almost lock in step with the modernist world. Now, I don't want to say that it's, it's because everyone's looking to synthesize modernism into their theology, because not a lot of people were, not at least on a you know global scale. But it, it's the zeitgeist, right? It's the it's the spirit of the age. It's what's in the water. Uh, this this individualist uh, focus, especially with the influence of Pietism, uh, and that's one to be our first places to kind of stop is in the early 19th century, the early 1800s, and that is the Second Great Awakening. 
right? We've discussed the first great awakening. Second great awakening is considerably different than the first great awakening. Um, that's probably where we're going to start with this whole period next, probably next week. Um, the second great awakening in America in the early 19th century uh, really resulted in this huge surge in Protestantism um, with a very distinct emphasis on revivalism and, and the emotional involvement of one's faith rather than having, um, let's say, the medieval concept of you know, salvation is really not even the issue. It's a state of grace and and working through the the um, oh, the different sacraments of the church in order to restore that after one's sin and all this kind of stuff. Salvation isn't really a question at that point so much. But when you start to come to you know some of the Protestant theologies, your concern about your your eternal state is yours to deal with, and there was a lot of people that. Uh, yeah, I'll start making calls on this, really took advantage of that vulnerable state that people were in. Uh, in the Second Great Awakening, you get some really bizarre stuff coming through. You uh, you know, at the front of churches, or at least of revival meetings, you'd have what's called the anxious bench, um, which, you know, someone who, you know, had a specific need, or they they wanted to become a Christian, or they wanted to, you know, be quite exuberant or something like this. They would come up to this and then everyone would direct their prayers towards them, praying for them and all this kind of stuff. And people would have all sorts of uh, reactions. Um, of it, It's just a very democratized view of Christianity that has never really existed. Uh, this idea of the internal and individual personal conversion being emphasized over belongingness to any church. Uh, you can see that affecting churches today still. Um, obviously, uh, the American church is humongously affected by this. Um, and and the, the rise of pietism and uh, a lot of that really created what is the evangelical world, uh, created uh, a lot of the independent church world, um, and Methodism right? The rise of Methodism comes right out of this kind of stuff. Uh, it, it, you know, the Methodist movement really was initially born of the first great awakening, but the second great awakening gave it an enormous boost, emphasizing a much more emotional and personal faith, um, and kind of leaving behind its roots in the Anglican church pretty quick. Uh, it spread rapidly all the way throughout the United States and also into the United Kingdom as well. Um, really gave uh, rise to, for these years, the the rise of independent churches. This idea that a church doesn't need to belong to, it doesn't need to be Anglican or Presbyterian or Lutheran or, you know, uh, Episcopalian or Methodist or Baptist or anything. We can just be an independent church. And, um, you know, the rejection of the, you know, denominational labels um, and and how they're governed and all these things, uh, we can just govern ourselves. And uh, when that kind of an air comes into a culture, and I'm not making a call whether that's wrong or right, uh, as a pastor of an independent church, I I'm not, I obviously am okay with it on, to a certain extent, um, but it does open the door for all manner of things, right? So you'll get the creation of Pentecostalism uh, from a single street, in uh, in L.A. in 1906, the Azusa Street Revival. That's that's where Pentecostalism comes from. But you know, before that, you have the rise of other things, uh, other movements in the 1800s that you know only in America is something like this going to crop up, and that's why all of them do occur in America. You get things like Mormonism, you know, which come out of the 1830s. That's uh, that that begins in. Pennsylvania, New York area, uh, spreads to Missouri and then ends up out in, uh, in the far West trying to make a state named Deseret, um, and eventually has to name it after, you know, some of the Native American tribe there, the Utahs, and that's where the state of Utah comes from, right? And so all of this, all of this kind of religious fervor and personal focus of, of how the world works and how God works and how revelation works and how the society works. All of this to say that it affects every single area of life. And 
modernism in the way it affects the church is quite unique. And there's some ways that it affected it for the positive, and there's other ways that it affected it towards the negative. One of the negatives is how modernity uh, has this, this almost progressivist bent. It's going to look towards the future uh, and, and you know, bring us to that gray future. Well, if, as soon as you take that kind of view towards the future and you mix it with theology, you are going to get what's called apocalyptic uh, movements. And it happens all over the place. Uh, in the 18 or in the 1800s and the 1900s, all over the place, and still within the last you know 15 years, still uh, the first massive one of these is the Millerite movement, which we will spend some time with. We're going to probably spend an entire night on 19th century apocalypticism. So uh, you know, bring the popcorn for that. Um, it's going to be something else. But um, the the this kind of idea of apocalypticism with the Millerite movement uh, important. You know, the prediction of the second coming of Christ and the end of the world was going to be October 22nd, 1844. Um, obviously, if you know your history and you know what date it is, uh, that did not happen. It resulted in what was known as the Great Disappointment. Um, and yeah, I mean, th this type of thing happens often and it will happen more and more. Um, a lot of the Millerites, when it didn't really happen the way they were looking at it, they reinterpreted it and ended up forming what is today the Seventh-day Adventist Church. That's where that comes from. We'll talk about that. Um, but this whole kind of end is near, you know, focus of stuff is really, it's kind of like this perfect storm, right? You, you can, if you can garner some followers, you can make whatever you want in America. You know, you can make the Mormon church. Who's going to stop you? I mean, they're going to try because they're pushing for polygamy and things like this, but What's really just going to happen is you just kind of move to the outskirts and set set up some communes or you set up something and try to become a state, um, you know, something like this. You get the rise of the Jehovah's Witnesses. You had another apocalyptic movement uh, that predicted the end of the world multiple times, um, you know, the 144,000 and all this kind of stuff. Um, you'll Once you get into the uh, mid to late uh, 20th century, you'll get the People's Temple. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, you'll probably know the name of the leader, Jim Jones. Uh, ended up with about 900 people drinking Kool-Aid laced with cyanide, uh, hoping to bring on uh, some kind of end of the world uh, celebration of things. Anyhow, uh, more into more recent years, the Branch Davidians, David Koresh and Waco, uh, this kind of rise of uh, end of the world. Uh, you get a... Um, you get a very involved or charismatic leader and a lot of people want to follow them. And a lot of people devote their everything to them, not just their money, but sometimes their lives. And it's, it's sad that that happens under the, under the auspices of what calls itself Christianity, but we have to address it. It comes up and, and the mixing of modernism with, um, or really it's not just modernism. It's really the mixing of extreme individualism with Christian theology almost always brings this about. We saw this with the Radical Reformations back in the 1500s, too. Um, one that's happened most recently, if you recall, is uh, Harold Camping and Family Radio. And, uh, you know, and predicting, um, you know, the the theory of the rapture happening in, what was it, um, May 21st, 2011, right? Um, and people, I remember watching videos at that time. People in, sorry, my light just died. People in... Uh, Times Square, waiting for the rapture, and then everyone standing around mocking them when it didn't happen, right? Because it was supposed to happen at 6 p.m. And that's th those types of things are frustrating, and those types of things are part of church history, and you have to deal with them, and you have to work through them. We'll work through a lot of that stuff. Um, you know, in the in the whole world of individual religion and custom Christianities, there really is no limit to what some will be open to follow and believe. And so while on the one side, there's a lot that'll look at this kind of stuff and say, you know, the, the rise of at least, you know, the, the, the crazier parts of this, at least we have uh, individual, uh, individual uh, pursuits of um, religion. It's not based on just straight up where you live. And it's not based on what, um, what your, 
nationality is, it's based far more on uh, a lot of the aspects of what um, of what you can believe. And unfortunately, we find out that a lot of us are more gullible than we imagine. Um, but yes. Uh, Ken, you mentioned Heaven's Gate. Ah, yes. Yep, another one. Not as... Um, yeah, not as well known by me, but I do know that that was uh, that was also in the '90s. That was um, yeah. I'm not sure I remember much about that. There was a there was a mass suicide related to that one too, I believe, uh, if I'm not mistaken. But um, yes, Heaven's Gate would be another one. Um, it's a it's it's an unfortunate thing that happens, but it's one of these things that we w- once we start kind of peeling back, you know what what brings all these things together. Well. The freedom to do anything without limits is not going to actually stop us from the eccentricities of the human mind, right? So it's not a pope doing something dumb. It's it's whatever you know cult leader we're following doing something dumb, right? It doesn't actually insulate us from doing something dumb, and that's what I that's kind of what I mean when when we go through church history. It's you know, well, is modernity a good thing or a bad thing? I you know, it's a thing. It, can we use it? Well, there's good things about it, just like everything. And then there's bad things about it. And that's why wisdom, not rules, are actually necessary in order to live the Christian life uh, in, in any way that's significant enough to address these things, right? So, I mean, that that's a lot of the religious stuff. There is, there's uh, another couple of aspects here I want to talk about uh, with regards to the culture as well, because the culture just, regardless of how Christianity is trying to morph and move and, you know, well, if it's Protestantism is trying to figure out how to bring modernity into the church uh, without losing our identity as Christians. But if it's Catholicism is trying to resist uh, modernism and, and spell out, you know, its authority and developing the doctrines of Mary and all these other things. Um, no pretense of Christianity here. Oh, and heaven's gate. Oh, that's an interesting thing. Um, yeah, that, that's not surprising either. Um, I, again, I don't know anything about heaven's gate really off the top of my head, but it wouldn't surprise me if, if we start seeing the rise of ones that are not distinctly Christian and are a little bit more, um, even secular, if not just, uh, devoted to independent religions, uh, just completely unique ones. Um, you know, like, you know, Christian, what is it? Or Scientology or Christian science, things like this, that, you know, anyone can just kind of go out and make one. Uh, you know, religion-wise, that it's just it's just a fascinating thing. Um, the industrial revolution is basically the society just kind of moving forward with with taking every scientific principle and um, just pursuing the future, regardless. Right? Not everyone's going to be sitting around going, "Hey, I got an idea. Let's let's figure out what our worldview is and ensure that you know everything's consistent on this." Other people are just going to go, "Hey, look." We figured out that we can pull oil out of the ground, refine it, and make a combustion engine. You know, I mean, and you got to kind of appreciate how fast this changed, right? In the year 1800, we don't even have a working steam engine yet. By the time we come to 1900, we're on the cusp of flying with internal combustion engines, fixed-wing, heavier-than-air aircraft, right? And and the first cars are on the road. So what a, what a switch in a single century. Uh, as far as for industrial uh, abilities, it altered everything in society. It altered everything, and it shrunk the world down. You know, traveling across the uh, across the ocean by sail, all of a sudden by steamship, it was cut in half, and in some places almost down to a third. Uh, you had electricity was finally being brought in. You got electric lights extending the night. You know, you've got all of these things that are happening. You've got communications as well. More things that shrink the size of the world. Uh, you've got the, <coughs> excuse me, the telegraph in the 1830s. you got the phone in the 1870s. The television comes out in the 1940s, 50s. And all of this just shrinks the world more and more and more. Uh, the first computers used by very technical people in the 1970s you know, by the time you get to the year 2000, 2010, you're starting to see it in every home connecting every, I mean, 2010, you got, you know, you got preschoolers that can use it. Right. And, you know, just to do something in class. I I mean, over the past several years, we've seen uh, an absolute explosion of how technology can shrink the size of the world 
down to basically nothing. Uh, and you know, instantaneously access to information everywhere. Um, it's it's something else, and it has changed a lot of how the world works, and has changed a lot of how society thinks of its own self, um, which is usually a little bit higher than it ought, which happens, you know, to all of us in every organization. Um, the two world wars of the first half of the 20th century definitely shook faith on this, you know, modernistic utopia. If we just pursue science, you know, everything will be fine. You know, that was, that was kind of the promise at the end of the night or at the end of the uh, 19th century, at the end of the 1800s, you know, the future was looking bright. We, we may actually end up in, you know, if Karl Marx had his way, way, a socialist utopia, again, modernist concepts, uh, you know, a way to fix the world, uh, technological advancement. It's going to, you know, make it so that we don't have to fight wars. There's no real reason for it. We can just produce economic output on levels that were unimaginable a couple generations ago. Um, you know, I, I remember reading an article from 1910 that said, you know, the world is now beyond war. Uh, and and what will the future look like? It's flying machines and and progress and and hopefully world peace. But as you know, the 20th century didn't bring that. It did bring progress. It did bring flying machines and things like this. But it didn't bring peace. And that huge hope of the modernist world that if we just make societies based largely on modernist ideals, that that's going to lead us to some kind of utopic vision where, you know, the, the wars of religion uh, are all in the past and we don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. We now are going to live in a world without war. Well, World War I starts. And as everyone knows, World War I was at the time called the Great War. And in some ways, it was also called the War to End All Wars. Well, that wasn't the case either. You know, I mean, you had some of the most advanced countries in the world that were going to war with one another. And because of the rise of population, because of the rise of technological invention, World War I was an absolutely nasty war. Um, but it was nothing compared to World War II, which when World War II comes up, now we've got technological innovations that are beyond the scale of anything we've ever seen before. Uh, the boom in population means that we've got not only military deaths uh, in the in the you know uh, in these eight figures, but we've also got civilian deaths in the eight figures. That's just it's on levels that we've never really seen before. Um, you know, those types of wars had never really happened before. Uh, the fall of empires and of worldwide empires, such as the British Empire and so forth, um, you really you see the rise of nation states that that really affect how everything's going to work in the future. Um, and you do see, uh, because of the rise of missionary efforts and everything else, and just the way in which society worked, you see a, <coughs> excuse me, a rise of churches throughout the world. And so now you have, uh, in the 19th and 20th century, a global Christianity that's starting to bubble up. You know, how does this really work? Because, I mean, Christianity has always been very focused in Europe and in North Africa and in the Near East. But that's been the focus for all of our church history class. You know, it's only been in the past several classes that we even moved to you know, the Americas. You know, all of our focus has been in Europe and in North Africa, just around the whole Mediterranean, just like, you know, the book of Acts was all around the Mediterranean. You, you know, you get, sure, you get some eccentrics, uh, you get the Ethiopian eunuch, so you, you know, put in the Horn of Africa, and then you've got, <coughs> excuse me, uh, you get Christians and Jews that, you know, Parthia and the Medes and the Persians and uh, Libya and all sorts of places, you know, even the book of Acts very early on, um, you know, the Apostle Thomas going out to India. You know, these types of things, but they're exceptions. Uh, most of our focus, in fact, almost all of our focus has been on what was the Roman Empire for centuries and centuries and centuries. And so it, it's not like Christianity needed to stay there. It's just that it just did. Um, and how 
it expands out of there is such a unique story that we are uh, that I'm trying to address for how this works because the reality of it is in in the wake of the first and second world wars uh the growth of christianity outside of traditional you know european uh heartland or even america which is more of an extension or new europe if you will um you know the church now has become very international um and it has to deal with all aspects of of culturalism and um, you know, what parts of culture can we use to affect theology and things like this? There's discussions happening in theology today that have never happened before. Uh, and that's, you know, you say, well, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? It's a thing. It's what Christianity always does. Every time it goes somewhere, the gospel does not need a culture to become another culture in order for it to hear and apply the gospel. The gospel, this is one of the things I love the most about it. The gospel is transcultural. You don't have to be a certain way or speak a certain language or be from a certain culture in order to become a Christian. This was settled in the book of Acts. Thank thank God very much for this, for establishing even in the book of Acts that if ever there was a culture for us to become, it would have been Jewish. But we have there the apostles making it very clear and the Holy Spirit making it clear to them. This is not a matter of becoming a different culture. The reality is that the gospel, the Holy Spirit, is going to go out into the world regardless of all of this. And so we have seen it in the past couple of lifetimes here uh, happening worldwide. And it's a really fascinating thing. Because now we find ourselves in the 21st century. And yeah, are we still dealing with the remnants of modernity? Oh, yeah. Uh, now we're seeing the rise of postmodernity, which is a whole nother discussion that we're going to have in another day. Um, but I wanted to kind of finish off here tonight with, with some, of the, some of the statistics for what the church of the 21st century is going to look like uh, and already does look like and the coming centrality of Africa and Asia. Um, because this is important stuff and I, and I, and I find a lot of Christians in the West right now are growing very despondent and are growing very, oh, how should we say nearsighted with how they see the progress or actually the regress of Christianity in our lands. Um, and, and thinking that somehow, we either need to change with the times or we need to we need to figure out something else to do or maybe God's just forgotten about us. And um, so let me put a little just a pastoral encouragement on all of this stuff. Uh, as we're stepping into the 21st century, uh, the center of gravity of Christianity is moving and it is moving fast. Uh, it is um, it is hard for us to wrap our head around exactly because we're watching it almost in real time. Um, but Europe, which was once the bastion of Christianity, both Eastern and Western, is leaving Christianity behind at an alarming rate. And now, arguably, so is North America. Now, we're nowhere near where Europe is currently, but we certainly seem to be on the exact same trajectory here. Um, again, what what in the past 200 years could have been a considered one of the centers of Christianity in the world Um as Christianity has gone out into uh, Africa, as it has gone out into Asia and even other parts of Latin America, um, it is reshaping the Christian landscape significantly. Uh, we saw this come up even recently uh, in the dealings of the of the worldwide Methodist Church, uh, where the African bishops basically put a stop to American bishops trying to do certain things. Now, Regardless of what side you are in that conversation, it is important to understand the amount of influence that the African bishops have. And that is that is a that is a remarkable shift. That is something that is very new. Uh, and you're going to be seeing a lot more of it as the centers of Christianity do shift uh, to what is called the global south. Um, and uh, I'll give you some of the statistics on this, just if you're not familiar with these. Uh, Pew Research Center in 2010 said that there were more Christians found in the global south 
than in the global north. In the global south, that's south of the equator, uh, would be 61% of Christians are found in the global south. That includes um, a lot of places that uh, would not be considered part of Western society, right? Uh, in the northern, obviously, the other 39% are on the northern half of the um, of the uh, of the planet, right? Projections into the next few decades do anticipate the trend to continue. Um, Africa and Asia are set to become the new centers of Christianity in the coming decades. And, you know, again, good thing, bad thing. It's a thing. Um, when, when church history classes are taught a hundred years from now, uh, they're looking back, they're going to be paying attention to their modern church is going to be largely centered in places like Southeast Asia and, uh, the Southern sides of Africa. It's, it's really unique stuff that's happening. Um, we've never really had such a migratory nature to Christian theology, which is really interesting in and of itself. Um, I mean, one of my, one of my theology professors in, um, in seminary was from Tanzania, you know, something like that wouldn't have happened 30 years ago. Um, cool stuff, really unique stuff brings all sorts of different perspectives that I had never even considered awesome stuff. Um, but higher fertility rates, uh, you know, growing econ economies uh, and all sorts of other things are affecting a lot of these things. <clears throat> the rise in uh, of Christianity in Central Africa, places like Nigeria and uh, the Congo, um, really have actually some of the world's largest congregations or largest Christian populations. Uh, the Philippines and South Korea uh, and South Korea have both seen enormous Christian growth. Um, you know, it, it's always just kind of fascinating to me how this, uh, this kind of stuff happens because church history is going to send us some curveballs. Uh, and this is the latest one. Uh, and it's really not just in the demographics of this. It's not just saying, you know, oh, there's a, you know, a, a rise in, in poverty sees a rise in Christianity or a rise in, you know, population or something like this. It's not just that, but it's, it's not just that it impacts demographics, but it also impacts theology. Um, everywhere that Christianity goes, it's kind of like Velcro. Um, it, it, it gets parts of the way in which it addresses questions from every culture it visits. And I personally find that fascinating. Uh, it affects practices. I love that. I love that because nothing in the scriptures goes out and spells out exactly how we should be doing a church service. I love that many more cultures are going to be able to speak into, you know, how we carry on a certain way in which we do uh, church meetings, for instance. Why is that important? It's important because the more cultures and the more differences that we have amongst us, the clearer it is what we hold in common being Christ. And, and the more different we are, the, the clearer can be seen what holds us together, and that is Christ. And so I, I think there's a lot of really amazing possibilities here. Um, but again, where exactly that goes, who knows? Um, there's a lot of different perspectives, a lot of different cultural priorities that the church is being faced with with regards to these things. Uh, and, you know, it's not to say that America is not trying in, in those who are claiming to be Christians uh, trying to change with times as well um, and follow culture around or try to, you know, steer culture in certain directions. Uh, that is definitely happening. Um, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, uh, again, it's a thing. Uh, we can argue theologically, but as far as for church history is concerned, it's it's one of the effects that will continue happening um, regardless of what happens. When culture goes a certain way, you can be certain that there will always be Christians that disagree with that direction. And there's always going to be Christians that agree with that direction. And um, time time tells uh, a lot of different things, but sometimes it's not as clear. Um, a lot of the challenge of the 21st century going forward is really going to be, you know, how to embrace the shift that's happening, you know, because we're not just dealing with, you know, the remnants of the Industrial Revolution. New things are created all the time. Uh, new information is uh, able to be pursued. New things are, are cropping up all the time. 
Um, familiarity with church history is something that I think important. And so I, I aim to instill that in everyone I know. Um, because the the concept of all of church history is is utterly important to the health of the church and to know where we're going. Uh, the rise of things like AI, the rise of of um, the ability to do what people call online church. You know, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Again, it's a thing. Can it be used for good or can it be used for bad? We need to we need to understand that. Um, you know, there's been a large rise of of things like Gnosticism coming back into the church. We need to understand that. We need to know what these things are so that we can address them. Um, all in all, <clears throat> suffice it to say, the Constantinian synthesis, where church and state worked together, is all but dead. If it rises up again, it's going to be in the global south. Um, I think there was so many lessons learned from it that it's going to be very spotty if it does come up again. Um, but it does seem to be that, well, definitely in the West, it's died out. Um, whether it'll happen in the South when Southern Christianity really takes over um, is yet to be seen. But I, I don't necessarily anticipate it. But again, I've been surprised by history before. Um, the, the end of the Constantinian synthesis means that there's certain aspects of of it that maybe we've gotten used to that will be going away. I will say one of those ones was tax exempt status for churches. Uh, there's going to be, I'll just do my little historical prediction here. There's going to be challenges to that straight up uh, in the next generation um, that it should or should not be there at all. Um, because, you know, what does it add to the you know culture in any unique way if we're going to do a strictly secular culture? Um, it's really going to be an interesting series of discussions and uh, and happenings. So um, with that, we are going to go ahead and bring this to an end. That was a huge overview, kind of a scattershot all over the place. Um, but do suffice it to say, we are going to be working through a lot of these things. Uh, and if any of them are of specific interest to you, welcome to post up in the comments um, uh, or even shoot me an email. Um, with that, I will say good evening to you all. And thank you for tuning in and um, Lord's blessings to you all.